ground Poor girl, poor girl, her head was never found Spooky greetings to each and every one of you. Hopefully you all had a very awesome Halloween and of course All Saints Day. We are now in November and I just can't believe the year has gone by this quick. Can't believe I started this podcast back in April. I'm of course your host Tessa Morrow. You are listening to Paranormal Prowlers podcast and the music is Bobby Mackey. This week's episode is all about exorcisms. What an excellent day for an exorcism. I have to agree with Reagan. It is an excellent day for an exorcism episode. See what I did there? Mm hmm. Now, exorcisms. They're a spiritual or religious practice that evicts evil, negative, and demonic spirits from an unfortunate person, an unfortunate soul who has found themselves to be possessed. When an exorcism is performed, an exorcist will be present for this. Now, this person is either a priest or a monk, a shaman or a nun, and in some cases, even a witch doctor. Now, you're about to hear some intense cases that have occurred throughout the years. Beware, for some, this may be a little eerie and disturbing, and There will be some recordings of one famous case that I'm going to play. And I'll warn you ahead of time for those who may want to turn that old volume knob down when that happens. And you may laugh and go, okay, you know, why the warning? Well, when I did my exorcism show back on my radio show back in the day, I actually had people contact me after the fact and saying how It was just so disturbing and how they can still hear that poor girl's voice in their heads. So I thought, okay, I'll be courteous this time and I'll let you know when I'm going to play that recording, okay? So let's dive right in. The first case that I want to talk about is Emma Schmidt. Emma was born to German immigrant parents in 1882. Her home life was anything but normal. Her father and aunt were having an affair. And I don't know if that wasn't bad enough. Like, you know, you think, how can things get worse? Well, her aunt Mina, a reputed local witch, was placing spells on the food that she would prepare for poor Emma. Many believe this is what caused her demonic possession. (sighs) Thanks a lot, Aunt Mina. Around the tender age of 14, Emma started exhibiting symptoms, verifying that she wasn't her normal self. She had several exorcisms conducted on her, the final being at age 46. A German Catholic priest, priest Racinger, would perform this act, and it is one of the most documented cases of demonic possession. In 1912, an exorcism was conducted on Emma. In 1928, the priest was summoned again to perform another exorcism. This time he thought it might be in in all people's interest, all parties involved, if they performed this act in the convent. So, on August 17th, 1928, she was taken to the sacred convent where she was showing intense signs, severe symptoms. When given food, she would go into fits of rage. You see, 
this was no ordinary food. No. It was sprinkled with holy water. She would also hiss like a cat. (sighs) The exorcism took place the following day, August 18th. It was reportedly quite a violent one. Emma, she was howling and shrieking and levitating. She would hang from the frame of the doorway. This exorcism lasted for several days, starting August 18th and ending the 26th. They weren't done with her yet. Before the year would end, she would undergo two more long sessions of exorcisms. The second session was September the 13th through the 20th, and the third was December 15th through the 23rd. It's on the final day of the third session that Father Raysinger commanded the demons in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary to depart to hell. It is then that Emma Schmidt collapses on her bed and starts to shriek out these names in a voice not of her own, saying, Beelzebub, Judas, Jacob, Mina, Hell, Hell, Hell. She opens her eyes and speaks again, this time in her own voice, saying, My Jesus, mercy, praise be Jesus Christ. After this third session, Emma still dealt with possessions, but they were more mild. And what was considered manageable, if that is such, if there is such a thing. When portrayed, the name used for her was Anna Euclid. The long exorcism broken into sessions was hard on it, poor Emma's body. What this woman went through? My God, I can't even imagine. Emma refused to eat food. Or whatever was possessing her body refused her lips the enjoyment of any type of food whatsoever. For someone not eating, though, she sure vomited a lot. Foul debris and what is thought to be, oddly enough, tobacco leaves. Her body was swollen, especially her lips, head, and face. As seen in many cases, she started speaking languages that, before this occurred, were very much unknown to her. Besides speaking in her native German and also English, she also started speaking and understanding Latin, Hebrew, Italian, Polish, and other Slavic languages. She became so violent that several of the nuns in the Franciscan order asked to be sent to another convent. Now remember, in a voice not of her own, she named four people that possessed her. Beelzebub, Judas, Jacob, and Mina. (laughs) Now, excuse my language, but it's really fucked up, especially when two of those names is her own flesh and blood. Mina, her aunt, the witch, and Jacob? Yeah, you guys, that's her own father. Mm Mm-hmm. Not cool. Emma was screwed from the very beginning. Being born into such a hideous family. Her father, while she was a young girl, made sexual advances towards her. And when she denied that relationship of incest, I know, how dare her, wow, he decided to curse her with the help of his lover, her aunt. 
It must be mentioned that during her sessions, while speaking in different voices that weren't her own, one of the voices she would use, Father Ray Singer recognized and interpreted it as the voice of Emma's Aunt Mina. I want to touch on one of the names she called out, Beelzebub. Beelzebub is known in demonology as one of the seven princes of hell. It is described as a being that can fly and is known as the Lord of the Flyers or Lord of the Flies. Now, next case is that of serial killer David Berkowitz, better known as Son of Sam. Now, before I get into this one, I just want to say that I personally believe he was a sadistic asshole who took pleasure in murdering people. I myself, my opinion, I, I have major doubts that anything about him was paranormal or supernatural and that he was not possessed. Again, that's my opinion, but anything's possible. And just because I think that doesn't mean that you don't think different. So I'm going to tell you a bit about David and you could, you know, form your own opinion. So David claims that he was driven to commit such heinous acts, murderous acts, because of Satan. Oh, it was Satan who demanded that I do this. I, of course, had no control over it. The only way to get rid of these demons that possess me, in his mind, you guys, was to kill people. He felt like he was being possessed and started leaving messages marking them as son of Sam. The people in New York were obviously frightened, rightfully so. No one felt safe. There was a madman out killing people. After being captured, Berkowitz said, I was once an evil man and I truly believed that Satan would come and release me. It was after spending about a year being incarcerated that he claimed that he made up the Son of Sam story and being possessed so that if he was ever apprehended, that he could use that story as a way to plea insanity. Told you, the guy just loves to kill. Well, after 10 years in the slammer, get this, he renames himself the Son of Hope, claiming that he has been forgiven and that he finally beat his demonic possession. <laughs> Satan came in disguise as it was David's own neighbor, his black Labrador retriever, that David said was possessed by a 3,000-year-old demon. He referred to Sam, his neighbor, as Sam, my lord, and Papa God. David Berkowitz says, and I quote, People need to know that demons are real. The exorcist is based on actual shit. Possession isn't just what you see on the outside. The torment inside is horrible. Demons are powerful beings. They use your own voice and douse against you. They make you feel crazy. They are in complete control. Unquote. Yeah, what he said is true, but I don't think it has anything to do with him. So one psychiatrist claims that Berkowitz created these demons as an alibi, an excuse for his murders. He would then lessen his guilt by blaming the demons, not himself. And I agree with this psychiatrist. I think that David Berkowitz knew exactly what he was doing and had total control over his own actions. Next up on the list is Clara Germana Selle. 
who was only 16 years old when she became possessed. Clara had a tough beginning in life. At an early age, she found herself orphaned in South Africa. For reasons unknown, Clara made a pact with Satan. Many believe this to be the cause of her possession. Whew, shocker. She confessed this forbidden act to her confessor, Father Horner. Like our first gal, Emma Schmidt, Clara was also speaking languages that were not her own, such as French, Polish, German, Norwegian, and several other languages. One nun kept a journal of what she was seeing take place before her very eyes with this young lady. The nun mentioned that Clara would she would speak about people, certain things that were near and dear to their hearts, their deepest secrets. And she never even met these people before. And much to the person's dismay, of course. It also seemed that Clara found it unbearable to be in the presence of anything that had been blessed. For being a young woman, she sure as hell had incredible strength. And like Emma, she would not only speak different languages, but it would also be not in her own voice. Regarding her voice, a nun wrote this. No animal had ever made such sounds. Neither the lions of East Africa, nor the angry bulls. At times it sounded like a veritable herd of wild beasts, orchestrated by Satan, had formed hellish choir. People have claimed to see Clara levitate several feet into the air. The exorcism itself started off with Clara showing aggression, anger, and violently knocking the Holy Bible out from the priest's hands. She then grabbed his stole in an attempt to choke him. The exorcism itself was short. It lasted but only two days. It is believed that Satan was cast out of her and she was healed. I searched for articles about this particular case and I wasn't really able to find much about it at all. Next up is the case of Arnie Cheyenne Johnson. Now, Ol' Arnie's case falls into the same category as David Berkowitz, as it has to do with murder. His case is the first documented, first known court case in the United States, where a defense team tried to prove their client's innocence in claims that there was a demonic possession taking place. Before Arnie became a murderer, a family was having issues with their 11-year-old son, David. Long story short, this family was desperate and just wanted their child back. Asking for help, and enlisted demonologist the late Ed and Lorraine Warren. The Warrens and the family had little David exercised by several Catholic priests. The exorcism took place for several days. It is then that whatever was in David fled and took residence in Arnie Cheyenne Johnson. Several months later, Johnson found himself in a heated argument with his landlord, Alan Bono. The end result left Bono mortally wounded. Doing some research and looking more into this case, I'm unsure if it has anything to do with spirit possession of a body or an actual case of defense. I'm going to explain a little of the situation to you, and you can be the judge, jury, and the executioner. Arnie had called in from work this particular day and went to the kennel with a woman named Debbie, who 
happens to be a family member of the little boy David that was possessed earlier on. Arnie and his sister join Debbie and her nine-year-old cousin Mary. Wabano shows up and he's not only their landlord but also Debbie's employer at the kennel. Bono buys lunch and drinks for all at a local bar and soon he becomes quite intoxicated. The girls leave to go get more food only to come back to find that Bono's worse than when they left him. He's being loud, he's being obnoxious and aggressive. Debbie, reading the situation and not liking any part of it, she gets nervous and suggests, let's hit the bricks, let's get out of here. Everyone starts doing just that when Bono grabs Mary, who, remember folks, is only a nine-year-old little girl. Arnie demands, hey, let Mary go immediately. Well, Arnie Johnson then was witnessed to start growling like what sounded like a wild animal. He then pulled out a pocket knife and violently stabbed Bono several times, and he would die several hours later. This was the first murder in the history of Brookfield, Connecticut, believe it or not. Now... Yeah, he growled. That's weird. But I guess you're, you never know how you'll act when you're in a situation like that. I personally think that maybe he wasn't possessed. Maybe he, human nature, what a lot of people would do, man or woman, you see a child in a desperate situation and he did what he thought he had to do to protect that little girl. I don't know. Who knows? Next case is a little bit more concrete. Taking us back to the late 1760s, George Luckins, people who knew him, they loved and respected George. He was a happy man. He was a man of many talents. You could find him singing. He was an actor of Christmas mummeries, a ventriloquist, and a tailor. He was a constant attendee at church as well. He was well-known and well-liked in the community. It was around the year... 1767 that people started to notice that hey old Georgie boy isn't quite acting like himself he would suddenly have fits that would come out of nowhere well George claims that he was okay until one day when he was performing around Christmas time when he felt what he called a divine slap he fell to the ground leaving him possessed by demons These fits mentioned earlier, he would make bizarre animal sounds. He would argue with himself and he would get extremely violent. The fits would begin and end with a strong agitation of his right hand. In 1775, George was sent to a hospital located in London. Mind you, he's been having episodes now for the past six, uh, seven years. His stay was a long one. He was committed there in May, and he left in October. So Luckin's condition, well, it unfortunately worsened. He was misdiagnosed, and he found no comfort, obviously, being misdiagnosed. It is believed that at the time of him receiving medical help, he, on the side, was also seeking help from witches, magic practitioners as well. Per magic practitioners' request and suggestion, he was told bizarre things like, He was supposed to roll up a brown paper with pins driven into this paper and to burn this object while having a fit. I don't know about you, but wouldn't it be weird when you're not being yourself and you're all of a sudden having this unexplained fit? 
yeah, here you go. Here's the lighter or matches or whatever. Play with some fire, you know. I don't think so. He started to believe that the elderly people had bewitched him. He was so convinced that he attacked an old lady in an attempt to draw blood. George was seizure and fit free for over a decade. In 1787, they arrived with a vengeance. Back when this started, George claimed that the attacks came from witchcraft. But now, well, now he claimed this was due to being possessed by the devil himself. A member of the temple church, a woman named Sarah Barber, she knew of George's condition and she approached her reverend, Joseph Easterbrook, requesting help. She says to him, I have seen a poor man afflicted with the most extraordinary malady, who, when it fits, sing and scream in various sounds scarcely human, and which fits, to my knowledge, he had been troubled with for near eighteen years. He had tried several medical gentlemen, but in vain. The people of Yatin conceived him to be bewitched, that he himself declared he was possessed by seven devils, and that nothing could relieve him. But the united prayers of seven clergymen, who could ask deliverance for him in faith? Reverend Easterbrook met with George Luckins several times and agreed he was in need of an exorcism. Authority was required to perform such an act, so Easterbrook requested a meeting to discuss the possibility of an exorcism. Sadly, his request would be rejected. No! Access denied. Easterbrook absolutely knew without a doubt in his mind that George, he needed help. So even though his request was rejected, he tried his best to cure George. He contacted Reverend John Wesley, one of the founders in the Methodist movement. Wesley, well, Wesley declined, unfortunately, as well. However, Easterbrook was able to get six other priests to perform this much-needed exorcism. Prior to the exorcism taking place, one of the seven men, Reverend John Valton, met with Lukens. He knew him and wanted to see him before the act was done. Reverend Valton said of the visit, Some time ago I had a letter requesting me to make one of the seven ministers to pray over George Luckins. I cried out before God, Lord, I am not fit for such a work. It was powerfully applied, God, in this thy might. The day before we were to meet, I went to see Luckins and found such faith that I then could encounter the seven devils which he said tormented him. I did not doubt but deliverance would come. Suffice to say, when we met, the Lord heard prayer and delivered that poor man. On June 13th, 1787, yes, folks, that happened to be a Friday. So, on Friday the 13th, Easterbrook assembled seven witnesses and six ministers to perform this much-needed exorcism. When the priest started singing hymns, George's face became distorted. His whole body began to spasm. During the exorcism, he would often speak in a deep, hoarse, hollow, and at times guttural tones. He would yell blasphemies in both male and female voices. He would sing and laugh uncontrollably, claiming he himself was the devil. 
He had become violent, and it would take several people to hold George down. As the priest prayed, he would sing to the devil in numerous voices, saying, We praise thee, O devil. We acknowledge thee to be the supreme governor. One priest demanded Luckins speak the name of Jesus, in which Luckins would reply, I am the devil. He swore by his infernal den that he would not leave. The demon said, Must I give up my power? Immediately after saying this, George started howling obnoxiously. The priest continued praying. George screamed, Oh, our master has deceived us. Where shall we go? The priest replied, To hell and return no more to torment this man. After two hours of continuous praying, George Luckins announced in his own voice, Blessed Jesus, followed by the Lord's Prayer. It is believed that he never experienced any issues or fits after this exorcism. And to think, it all started one Christmas day while singing. Something quite innocent, right? Next up is the case of a little boy remaining anonymous who dealt with a severe demonic possession in the 1940s. It is believed that the movie we all know and love, The Exorcist, is based on this case. We know this child as Roland Doe. Roland was born into a childless family. He had no playmates, so he absolutely relied on the adults of the Doe family to entertain him, play with him, keep him company. This especially was true with his Aunt Harriet, a woman who was indeed a spiritualist. It would be Aunt Harriet who would introduce little Roland to the mysterious and often misunderstood Ouija board, only after he showed interest in it. A while down the line, the family suffer a loss. Aunt Harriet, the spiritualist, dies. It's afterward, when she dies, that the family start experiencing really unexplained events happening in their house, strange happenings. Strange sounds coming from within the house itself, furniture moving all by itself, objects like flower vases would levitate or fly, but only when Roland was nearby. The family was scared and desperate, and who could blame them, seriously? So they turned to the church, asking their pastor, Luther Schultz, for help. Luther agrees. For years, he showed interest in parapsychology. It was arranged for the boy to stay with Luther for an evening so Luther can observe any activity and the boy's behavior. Well, the pastor witnessed things fly in the air and furniture moving on its own accord. He suggests the family visit with a Catholic priest. It is thought that Roland Doe underwent several exorcisms. One exorcism was immediately shut down when Roland, a young boy, suddenly gained the strength of several grown men, one hand escaping from the restraints, breaking a bedspring from underneath the mattress and using it as a weapon, slashing into the priest's arm. The family ended up traveling to St. Louis, where they had a family member who contacted a professor at St. Louis University. It was planned that two priests would try to help the boy and his family. They allegedly observed flying objects and the bed violently shaking. The young boy would speak in a guttural voice and showed aggression to anything that was blessed or sacred. They requested from the archbishop a second exorcism, which was granted. 
Access granted. This exorcism would take place at the Alexian Brothers Hospital, also in St. Louis. Again, the exorcism would turn very violent. Roland would end up breaking one of the priest's nose. Many, to this day, believe this case to be nothing more than a child who was spoiled and was known to throw fits. But I must ask, is he a magician? How do you explain the levitating objects? The furniture, something big like that, moving on its own. And when it comes to the guttural voice, that's where I'm kind of like, okay, if there was something, then that could be it. Because me, when I was two years old, I was able to start speaking in the monster voice you hear from time to time. This voice. Yes, this one. Okay, fine. A lot of people could do different voices. But about those other things, it's kind of harder to explain. Now, I need to mention that I wrote down all of these names, okay? The names that I was going to be talking about, these cases. And I fold the papers up in half and threw them in a little container, shake it around, and I would pick one, one by one. Each time I would pick the name Annalise Michael. And she is the one that I'm going to be using actual recordings of. So I kind of wanted to save Annalise for last, but she kept popping up, popping up. I'd keep throwing her back in, keep popping up. So Annalise, Anna Elizabeth, who's better known as Annalise, was a German young woman, young lady, actually, who underwent several exorcisms. Now, it's no secret that this poor girl had issues. She started having seizures and was diagnosed with temporal lobe epilepsy. After her diagnosis, she grew into a deep state of depression, for which she was treated at a psychiatric hospital. So while there, she begins to see what she calls devil faces several times a day. She was a deeply religious person and she would pray often. While praying, she would suddenly start to hallucinate and often tell others that voices were telling her that she was damned and that she was going to rot in hell. Her condition only worsened throughout the years. She grew very suicidal and she started to exhibit bizarre behaviors such as being completely intolerant to sacred and blessed items. For five years, she fought these battles and also taking her medication with not even the slightest of improvements. Both Annalise and her family felt that her body was under attack and not by some mysterious illness, but that she was possessed by a demon, if not several. So her family went to a Catholic church requesting an exorcism and they were turned down the first time. But in 1975, two priests were granted permission to perform an exorcism on Annalise McKell. The end result, Anna Elizabeth dies a horrible death and her parents, along with the two Roman Catholic priests, are found guilty of negligent homicide. Actress Jennifer Carpenter portrays Annalise in the movie The Exorcism of Emily Rose. And a few weeks ago, actually maybe more like a couple months ago, I did try to contact her to see if she would want to be on the podcast and talk about the movie and what it was like to actually 
become Annalise. And I never heard back from her. But, you know, in the past, I've reached out to some of these people before. And surprisingly, yeah, they do reach out, um, you know, right back. So thought I would try. Can't win them all. So the McHale family had a friend that often organized Christian pilgrimages. Annalise went with this friend and the friend agreed that she was being possessed as she couldn't even walk past a crucifix and downright refused to drink even the tiniest morsel of water of a Christian holy spring. Witnessing this event, Father Alt had this to say, quote, Annalise told me and Fra Hein confirmed this, that she was unable to enter the shrine. She approached it with the greatest hesitation, then said the soil burned like fire, and she simply could not stand it. She then walked around the shrine in a wide arc and tried to approach it from the back. She looked at the people who were kneeling in the area surrounding the little garden, and it seemed to her that while they were praying, they were gnashing their teeth. She got as far as the edge of the garden, then she had to turn back. Coming from the front again, she had to advert her glance from the picture of Christ. She made it several times to the garden, but could not get past it. She also noted that she could no longer look at medals or pictures of saints. They sparkled so immensely that she could not stand it. And remember, you guys, this behavior is indeed bizarre, as it is coming from a girl that for her whole life has been religious. She was raised in a religious home and went to mass at least two times every single week of her life. Her family begged for help, but were turned down time and time again. Meanwhile, Annalise is growing more aggressive, more impatient, and worse, more violent. She's growling. She's causing harm to herself. She gets into fits and throws things and again claims to see devil faces and demons. Even more disturbing, she starts to drink her own urine. She eats bugs and coal, even biting the head off of a dead bird. At one point, she crawled under a table and barked like a dog for two days. All of this very out of character. Priest Ernest Alt, whom I just quoted but a moment ago, upon first seeing her, thought that she did not look epileptic, that she did seem to be deeply possessed by a demonic presence. Knowing they were declined for an exorcism, he took it in his own hands, literally, as he wrote a letter to the higher-ups, begging for an exorcism for this poor young lady, this poor soul. Bishop Joseph Strangle granted an exorcism, but with that, he ordered total secrecy. To her parents, she requested to stop all medical treatments, as she feels that they did not do a single positive thing for her, and solely relying on the exorcist conducting their exorcisms on whatever ungodly things that were residing within her. For the last 10 months of her short life, one, sometimes two exorcism sessions were conducted weekly, totaling 67 sessions, each lasting up to four hours. Wow, just heartbreaking, right? During these exorcisms, Annalise revealed the names of these who she believed possessed her. Lucifer, Judas, Hitler, Nero, and Cain. 
each of these evil presences fighting with one another. Hitler said, people are stupid as pigs. They think it's all over after death. It goes on. Judas said of Hitler, you're nothing but a big mouth. You have no say in hell. On the first day of July in the year 1976, Annalise Mikkel passed away in her home. Autopsy reports state that the cause of death was malnutrition and dehydration. Her body was in a semi-starvation state for almost a year, weighing only 68 pounds at the time of her death. Now, folks, I'm going to play some, a couple short recordings, audio recordings. And as promised earlier, I am warning you now, so turn this down if you feel like this might kind of freak you out for a few seconds. So here we go. So she's talking about people praying and if only the dumbasses had a clue and it's it's unnerving you know it's this this is coming from a young woman this frail young woman and it's hard to believe that it's coming from her and here's a little bit more So the priest is asking her why she fears the rosary and she's kind of just saying because because and then she just starts going out of control and then she's like shut your mouth and there's a lot more if you listen you know I mean obviously this isn't in English maybe some of you might have understood that but you don't have to understand the language to understand that wow this is really crazy this is eerie this isn't right something's totally wrong here you could read the mood. You could feel the fear. So, you know, several names were called out. Lucifer, the fallen angel. Cain, the son of Adam and Eve, who killed his own brother. Hitler, the monster responsible for millions of deaths. Judas, the betrayer of Jesus. And Nero, the Roman emperor who had his own mother brutally murdered. A dangerous and lethal group indeed. There are many other cases out there. Some old, some more recent. One last one I want to mention is that of Mother Teresa. She was very sick. She was in the hospital. She was having restless nights. And a close friend of the nun, Archbishop Henry de Souza, suggested that she may be in need of an exorcism. And she agreed. I mean, she was out of control. She would go from a weak, sick person to gaining strength and pulling out all of her hospital wires. The night after her exorcism, she slept like a baby. The archbishop in later years would say this about the exorcism. Mother knew about the exorcism. She was quite happy about it. She thought she might be troubled by the evil one. 
It so happened that she slept very well afterwards. Exorcisms and exorcists, they're a real thing. They're the real deal, and they occur to this very day. The end result? Some, they're able to walk away and live a normal life for the rest of their days. Others, they're not so lucky. Did you enjoy this week's episode? Listen to the others. They're equally awesome, you guys. Subscribe now through iTunes, Apple Podcast, Podcast Addict, Pocket Cast, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, and so many others. Basically, wherever you find your other awesome podcasts, you'll find Paranormal Prowlers Podcast. See you next week.